Welcome to Detoxicity. This is a podcast in which I try to change the narrative around masculinity a little bit and allow some progressive voices and some interesting voices, diverse voices, to come into the picture. My name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce this show, and I thank you very, very much for listening and for supporting from the bottom of my heart. It means a lot. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you are subscribing to it. If you aren't, please press the subscribe button on wherever it is you're listening to it, and uh, that way you'll get episodes on demand when they come, uh, which is usually on Wednesday mornings. I also certainly ask that you uh, spread the word. Uh, Please rate the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen. Um, Make sure you leave a comment if you have something nice to say or if you have something constructive to say. It doesn't all have to be nice. And by all means, tell your friends, tell anyone who you think might get some creative juice or inspirational juice or just would uh, you'd like to listen to this please spread the word uh, however you can i am on social media if you would like to follow me i am on instagram at detox pod guy uh, my twitter is on hiatus for a little bit it will come back but it is tis mike joseph feel free to follow me on either of those platforms there is also facebook.com slash detoxicity and if you have a comment you can email me detoxpod at gmail.com I am always on the lookout for new guests, so if you know somebody who you think has an interesting story to tell or something to add to the overall conversation around detoxifying masculinity, please reach out to me via any of those platforms, and certainly if you yourself would like to be a part of this podcast, please reach out, let me know. Once again, I thank you for listening. This episode's guest is Grant Palmer, an educator and academic based in Southern California. Grant has taken some literal and figurative bumps in order to get where he is today. From an unhealthy childhood to a series of medical mishaps that include suffering a stroke as a preteen and getting hit by a car. During our conversation, Grant discusses what all of those mistakes have taught him. He attempts to understand his privilege and how to use it for good in the academic world. And he's so excited to talk that we skip the introduction completely and get right into it with the discussion about our mutual love of hip-hop, which makes sense because music is what initially brought us together. Now, without further ado, here's Grant. So back to what I was saying is the way that certain like rap acts like Outkast or Wu-Tang to me and my f- group seem like it's marketed to white males of, of, of like a junior high, high school age. And I'm not saying it's not marketed to other people because where you're growing up, it's like down the street or whatever. It's a different thing. So I remember... Being in high school, my older buddy, Nate Goza, he was valedictorian. He was on the, but he was on the basketball team. So I was like, oh, you can be like a smart guy and you can also hoop. You can be and, a jock and a smart guy. And, and to disparage him, I guess it's legal in California. The guys also listening into like diggable planets and smoking weed. So I was like, huh? I was like, <laughs> okay. And so when I start listening to The Roots Come Alive or something like Outcast, I'm listening to it with these white kids who were in the jazz band at my high school. And they're like jamming on the groove. They're learning the bass lines, right? And so, for example, when Wu-Tang Triumph, I remember sitting around and learning lyrics with my friends. And I won't lie, these days, if I rap along and the N-word arrives, I say person, you know. But you don't know as a kid. You don't know what to do. You have to unlearn. And I started thinking about that, like, in this moment, music's in two directions. It's like that rap core, like Deftones, which is not rap core to put them in there, but that's maybe the best example of that moment that I think of, but Head, P.E., Papa Roach, stuff like that, 
which is really aggressive. Did you watch the Woodstock 99 documentary on I HBO didn't, Max? I, I, I just, that made me a little uncomfortable. Um, no, as it should. So the vibe of that music, that aggressive male. So growing up in rural desert, Southern California, that's the general mindset is the aggressive male guy who wears skate brands and rides a dirt bike. And unfortunately, I mean, to, to put it like this, it's also like a rape culture. You go to parties and it's scary. It's terrifying. You know, I'm a redheaded kid. I'm not some macho guy. It was a very aggressive place to be. And so in an interesting way, listening to something like Outkast or Wu-Tang, which people would call aggressive rap. And I'm like, nah, but it's chill compared to what these guys are doing. And it's also commenting on the toxic masculinity that's operating. And again, at that time, I I remember (laughs) hearing Liquid Swords for the first time and hearing the words. And I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. You know what I mean? And then a couple of things had to come together. And then I started to realize, oh, like they're narrating a type of masculinity and music is different than other pop culture mediums. Music, it's like a performer speaks and people are like, that's what that fool thinks. Like Mm -hmm. they said it in their lyrics and that's it right there. And how Eminem's lyrics were. And what's funny is when you think about why Eminem was really accepted by the rap community, it's ridiculous. It's super self-aware though. It's like, hey. Eminem comes in, he's all, I'm not going to make a Dre, like, Easy e Compton Streets record, even though he's from Detroit, that's not really my thing. I'm going to make this weird cartoon rap about me living at the trailer park. It's going to be this, like, white person experience. It's, and so my thing is, I don't know how well Eminem ages, right, over time. No, right? Like, yeah. However, there is a moment at the end of the 90s, him expressing his angry white maleness when you don't take it at face value, you're like, he's getting at something there. Like that's a, yeah, his experience. I'm happy to disparage the man yeah. if, if need be. You know, I'll disparage a lot of what he turned into over time. Sure. And when sure. He, and then there is a moment too, when I think about lyrics in general, you could put anything out into the universe, right? You could say anything. And there's certain art where you're like, you made that. You put that out. You know what I mean? And don't get me wrong, I'm not discounting the value of certain shock art and being shocking in in art mediums. So anyway, I found myself really gravitating to like outcast in that time period. Because one thing I was really into as a kid was like, who produced these records? Who's making the beats? I didn't know what Dungeon Family was. I didn't know that they had like a whole team of musicians. But I recognized it from all my jazz buddies because they're this huge collective they would break off into little trios and quartets and play the local coffee shops and stuff like that. And living in Southern California, I remember going to see Outcast at a, it was a big outdoor festival called, called Audiotistic. I think it was 2003. And it was a huge show. Outcast headlines, Paul Oakenfold is doing a rave in the other <laughs> tent. But it's like, it's all the underground heads at the time, right? Weird thing for Outkast to be headlining. It's headlining. Sort of, of their popularity. So here's what I'm saying. All of that backpap atmosphere, fat beat stuff is marketed to white kids, right? And Outkast oh, yeah. and, and Roots are the headliners for it. And I look around the crowd and granted it's in San Bernardino, California, which is the IE. Sure. Don't get me wrong though. There's a lot of, there's a lot of different populations going on in San Bernardino and, and the IE. However... Still, there's a huge predominantly white population and particularly like the the surrounding IE areas. And in that crowd, I'm like, wow, this is really like marketed. And then then you're looking around (laughs) 
and everyone's rapping along. And even at that moment, even in that unawareness, I'm like, oh, I wonder if these people really know what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, well, let me ask you, you're like the hip hop class graduation above me, right? In a very general way. What are your thoughts on like the current state of hip hop? And you know, hip hop and rap's not one thing. It's a lot of things. Right. Uh, you know, look, mm-hmm. if we were having this conversation in... 1995. Yeah. I'd be like, hey, look, I, or 1993. Yeah. I, I'd be like, look, I buy any hip hop tape that comes out. Yeah. Particularly if it's from New York. I think some of some of my attrition from hip hop is age. Mm-hmm. Like there's not a lot of rap for 45 year old men. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And some of it is lack of identification with the culture now. Yeah. Yeah. So as I'm thinking about all of the music I listened to in 2021, mm-hmm. I, I don't even know if I can think of a hip hop album that I listened to straight through and enjoyed all the way through, which is a 180 degree turn from where I would have been 30 years ago. Yeah. You, um, you bring up the important point, though, of who you are. Hip hop scratches an itch of a young person. And it can be coded as predominantly masculine, sure. Um, yeah, 100%. Also, I won't lie. I force myself to engage with art that I don't want to. And so I listen to every future record on repeat until I started to hear distinction and melody and things like that. And now You're a good man. I'll listen to future when it comes to new stuff for that reason. However, again, there's always moments where there are certain lyrical content that just crosses lines that you're like, not to say I don't love the shocking stuff, but as a kid, that shocking stuff was far more palatable. Look, mm-hmm. there's stuff that I listened to when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, that I have a really difficult time with now. Yes. yes. Uh, particularly as a hip hop fan, yes. if I want to listen to Death Certificate by Ice Cube, which yeah. came out when I was 15. Yeah, yeah. I got to skip past a lot of it yes, now yeah. just because it makes me very uncomfortable. Like we're talking Eminem, sure. right? I don't think I've listened to any of those albums in quite some time. I'll remember them fondly, but if I put it on, I would be like, oh, I can't get through this. I found as I age, if I can't listen to an album with my windows down driving around and not be embarrassed and not want people to hear what I'm listening to, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I need to like, tone this down i'm not saying I'm, i want to you know uh, sell sh- art short for the sake of decency you know talking about having to come to terms with a lot of our heroes betraying us or letting us down one of the people that is really hard for me to let go of is, is uh, david bowie because he has some stuff in his past about you know i've <sighs> there is the almost famous film is based around the the groupie um, she's a, supposedly sleeps with several like stars when she's like 14 15 and david bowie is is one of these people right he's probably 25 at the time she's 14 15 and it's like i i love bowie but it's hard for me because i'm like i need to confront that kind of action even in my heroes you know what i mean and it's easier to make excuses for some artists over others like Eminem, you're like, well, he's yelling a bunch of crass stuff. That's easier to let go of him. But when it's more like, let's say, timeless or, 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 you know, however you want to look at that. Then I start thinking about all the people in history that don't have some story like that, that made beautiful art. I Mm -hmm. I would say when it comes to musicians specifically, Mm -hmm. it is really hard to differentiate. It is. Because 
there is something about people that make music. Yes. That lends itself to being fucked up. No, I was going to say this. Looking for perfection in others is you're not going to find it, right? Right. Like, for example, yeah. I was uh, on my way oh, yes, to meet yes. my friend at the bar earlier, and I had my phone on, on shuffle, mm-hmm. and the Marvin Gaye song came on yeah, yeah. called uh, Masochistic Beauty. Yeah, yeah. And it is basically him going through, like, a kink scene. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is violent and yeah. misogynistic yeah. and a little difficult to listen to. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like... As someone who has knowledge of of kink and, and all, all mm-hmm. that stuff, yeah, you have to figure like where was this guy coming from? Yeah, should yeah. I be listening to this? Yeah, uh, you got you have to consider the time. You have yeah. to consider the way that he was brought up in yeah. in the Christian, you know, in the black church, and yes. with yes. all of this shame and and yes. it, it, yeah. there's so much you have to kind of take in. Yeah, yeah, as as you can cons- consume the art, it's not just consuming the art; it's you, considering all of these different things as you're listening to it and appreciating the person that made it. You know, you bring up a great point too, because the relationship between poetry and lyricism is very close, if not the same thing. Right. And, you know, I teach poetry to, to, to college kids. And one thing I need to remind them, I'm like the speaker and the poem is not necessarily the writer of the poem or the person because they are an Oracle or a mouthpiece or they're, or they're, or they're working through a character or they're working through ideas. And I write poetry myself. I know how that is. And generally what you do is you create a character. That's where Eminem did a fantastic job of drawing attention to the artifice of what uh, hyper pop music is. You turn into a character and you perform that character uh, Bob Dylan does this, right? It, doesn't it come out later that he is a, I don't know, a casual conservative, but his bread and butter though is he's like the, the folk voice of the people or something like that. Right. And back to the point you're making, hardship and pain begats art, right? And a song is not necessarily some dogmatic, philosophical, ethical instruction manual. It's a reflection on the human emotion, emotional capacity, which is some shit. You bring up this great point. What is it to fail and what is it to be forgiven, given second chances? I mean, outside of a religious context, right? Because one thing that I really hope that the Me Too movement did for people is it made, made me reflect on times in my life where I was very insensitive to colleagues, friends. You know, you're talking about being a queer person. On TV, people can turn on the television and they'll see a drag race or something. And then sure. people will be like, oh man, this queer culture is everywhere. And you're like, no, it's not. First of all, God bless what they're doing. It's great. It's still a very particular version of it. It's still like, it's is palatable. Yeah. And, and that's not dominating, you know? So I don't want to segue to a heavier convo, but talking about our heroes letting us down, that's where Chappelle doesn't understand He's calling to some sort of community that doesn't exist. He's all, hey, the, the trans community needs to do X, Y, and Z. You're like, there's no collective community. The, it, communities that try to form gets eradicated physically. And don't get me wrong. I understand the complexities of his intersections with like his own like blackness and his own right. maleness in that matrix of blackness in America. Right. So, like, Chappelle was a hell of a guy who was like, hey, you're making these mistakes and this, here's just how it is. And you laughed with him as a white guy, but really you're like, I know that that's what we're doing over here. And it helped the culture. However, it was still safely masculine. It was still squarely in a non-queer capacity. You know, yes. to, there was like a wave of feminism that got into pop culture and just swept a bunch of stuff out. And it was a relief to... 
I hope all, but I know some people. One of those things where I think about how stuff like that helps everyone, even these yahoos who thinks they're against it. I bring up my father being someone like this. And I'm like, well, you know, this history hurts you. You know, when I look at angry white males and a, a white fiction of needing to be on top of some false hierarchy has given all of these guys some psychosis or it is a psychosis perhaps to even generate such a culture, but it's like, it's fine. No. there's a sickness in a culture like that. That is often reflected in like really brash rock and roll and stuff like that. That <laughs> I think about this a lot back to gangster rap and guys being tough. Um, you're so tough that you went home and made a melody about it and sang it into a microphone. I thought right. about that a lot. I think about, well, what is it to turn that into art? And who are you that you decided? I think about how we're the people in charge. We just lose sight of that sometimes. It's uh, right when you're a kid, you're like, there's a room of smart people making all the decisions. And then you grow up and you're like, wait a minute, you're all it's us again, though. We're in a moment, though, where there's. I, I thank the internet. You know, a lot of people disparage the internet. I do like philosophy of technology studies and I try to get at technology as a mirror and a reflection and an extension of the human. And it and it's a symbiotic prosthesis, prosthetic of the human as opposed to Terminator where it's going to destroy the human being is an organic creature that used technology. And then now you and I learn what it is to be human from books and media, which is a technological memory box. And so we learn to be human from our tech. And so you can't remove the tech from us any longer. The Matrix seems to be offering a productive utopia, you know, from honestly one watching and me not putting a lot of thought into it. So yeah. if anyone's listening, who's like, hey, I've, I, I watched it more critically and they actually let, let's talk about it. So with Matrix in mind and even the theme of that movie. The importance of transformation and what is it to change and what is it to learn from your mistakes, right? Um, yeah. I, I think a lot about the the, the men being me too'd, right? The way they apologize, the way they don't take accountability for their action because it's like they don't see the structure as being the problem. They see as it might have been read that they acted like they, – they see it on a personal fr uh, attack. Okay. Um, what am I, what, so talking about heroes that you had to, you had to uh, think about Jeff Garland from Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's also the dad on the ABC show, The Goldbergs, right? Okay. And so he's been fired from the show for kind of saying a bunch of crass stuff on set historically. So I just wrapped up the final season of Curb um, on HBO. Now it was filmed before all this, but I think about his character on Curb is he's like this womanizer who's always cheating on his wife and he's being like this gross guy, but it's a joke, right? Because we're supposed to read it ironically. But right. then when you hear about this, it reframes the show and you're like, well, it's not a joke now. It's just him being a creep. It's right. And, and now he probably just made a million dollar contract being in Curb to be a creep again. Let me back it up too, because the point I was making was when he responded to it, it was kind of like the, oh, like I didn't know like it was a problem. Why didn't anyone just say anything? Well, because he's the most popular guy on the set. What are you going to do? Let's say that you're some key grip on set. You're the person who's bringing in the, you know, the donuts in the morning or whatever. Like- you're you're trying to pay your rent. Yeah, you're not you're not going to challenge the. I this will seem like a topic shift, but it's not. Remember in the internet era of LimeWire and stuff, where you just downloaded movies and music and media all day long, like it was cool. Did you do that? Did you just pirate yes. everything? Right. I I had I I had a phase. Yeah, and we all did. The culture was different. However, in my old age now, I'm like I want to buy stuff, and so in LimeWire days, you 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 know. 
that's when Napster and then like the big Metallica and everyone's like, oh, Metallica sucks mm-hmm. because they're already millionaires. Who cares? Because you're only thinking about Metallica. You're not thinking about all those people that recorded that record. You're not thinking about how there's a bunch of people who make like 30K a year. You know, yeah. That's what I tried to bring into the conversation mm-hmm. back in those days. Because in the early LimeWire days, yeah. I was working at a record store. Yeah, yeah. Managing a record store. Yeah. And it's like, you're not just taking money out of Metallica's pocket. You're yeah. taking money out of my pocket. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't make enough money for you to be comfortable taking money out of my pocket. There's a producer. There's an engineer. Mm-hmm. There is staff at the studio. There are people that work at the record company that market and bring the record to record stores. There's record store employees. There's That pie gets cut a hundred different ways. Yes. Yeah. I think the word industry might be lost on several people when they think about... So you know how people get mad at our worship of celebrity and they're like, why are we always talking about celebrities in the news and stuff? I'm all because the people who manufacture... that media that's them too like they're the academy awards they're making the movies like all of this is built in pr i think about how you know an author like uh, mark twain would write his own reviews and like submit them under different names to newspapers and be like this book is garbage and then be like this book's great to like generate all this like controversy you know talking about people you know Actually, the Mark Twain conversation in 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 African American literature is a very that's that's a dense conversation too, as far as like representation of uh, blackness. What has that looked like historically? What do we do with heroes who also are existing in certain time periods? I mean, uh, Mark Twain is both helpful and steeped in white and, supremacy simultaneously, yep. which is which I think kind of gets at. You know, I I teach generally American literature courses, and I usually have to have a conversation about the paradox of where we're at. You can love a lot of this stuff, but also be deeply troubled by how it came to be. And coming to terms with something and finding a better way historically has been as gendered as a feminized thing. And masculine thought is right the first time because it's Aristotelian. Because um, according to Aristotle, things have their meaning inside of them and they will reach forth in the future. It's like, it's a telos, which really is what Hitler uses to justify Nazism. If you really want, am I calling Aristotle a Nazi? Yes. What Alexander the Great did is what Hitler did. And Aristotle was his tutor. It's just that it was in a different historical context. It has a different, again, if any history buffs, you know, I'm not a history major. However, you know, I dabble in a little history due to to cultural studies. I'm curious how... 38-year-old Grant Palmer got to where he is. Because I, I would imagine that 15-year-old or 16-year-old Grant Palmer wasn't aware of all of these things, wasn't no. aware of racialization or, or gendering or any of that stuff. And as a straighter, at least straight presenting white male mm-hmm. in Southern California, mm-hmm. where I think a lot of people similar to your upbringing would have had trouble or might still probably still have trouble reckoning with all of this stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did you kind of push through all of it and really give all of this conscious thought and come out kind of on the other end? So what helped me really do this was trauma. So growing up, my dad always, he's an alcoholic. He has a problem with drugs like methamphetamine and that kind of thing. When I was younger, he was into it. When I was in kindergarten, he, he quit 
for the most part, but he was such an angry, fired up guy that the, the household was very tumultuous. So growing up was very traumatic. And so for me, going to school was like this nice break from the... Huh. the as my older brother, who is great now, growing up though, he absorbed a lot of the negative energy from my dad. And so there was a lot of physical violence between me, my dad, and my older brother, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I was in fifth grade, I had a stroke. Um, and well, I, what? I had a, yeah, I had a brain, uh, a, a blood vessel, an artery burst in my head. I have abnormal blood vessels that get skinny. And so they'll clot up and it burst, right? Oh, and, shit. And so fifth grade, I started getting headaches really bad. And they, t- my older brother had epilepsy. And so they thought that, so I started getting ed- headaches really bad. I went to a doctor. They're like, oh, you're probably just having early puberty. But I was like nine. And my family's like, eh, I don't know. And then because my brother has epilepsy, they're like, maybe he has something like that, right? So they went to get a second opinion. So I get another brain scan. And they're like, no, it's just like some spinal fluid on the brain. You're fine. So six months pass and it explodes. It was a blood clot. It was, I mean, excuse me. It was a, yeah, there was a, a like plaque in my artery, you know, built up in it. So it's an aneurysm if you're older, but as a young kid, they don't call it that. And so, so basically I have the stroke. I don't walk for like three months. I'm home taught. So this is sixth grade. Luckily my family, they're big readers. So everyone brings me books and my, my cousin who, you know, dies in combat. He's a huge reader and he's a huge culture guy. So he brings me all these books and comic books and everything. And so anyway, I heal from brain surgery. And this is a moment where my dad the whole time is fired up. And it's tough because there's a question of whether or not his mishandling of me and my brother caused our brain injuries. So anyway, so sixth grade, I I go back to to school and I I start hanging out with, with a friend and I go to his house one day and his mom's a DJ in town, right? So she's gone all the time. And, and he, he has a babysitter who's like this dude in his, maybe his 20s or 30s, kind of a strange guy, but you know, I'm a kid, whatever. He likes Dungeons and Dragons, though. Well, I've been playing since like second grade, so I'm like, cool, let's play D&D. Well, later, so I, I spent the night at the guy's house this weekend, and the older guy, he ends up like coercing me into a back rub and starts to like molest me. Like he puts his hand down my pants, you know, grabs my genitals, that kind of thing. Now, I had enough wherewithal to be like, hey, like, I got to go to the bathroom, right? And I go in the bathroom and I just, you know, I'm a kid. I stand in there for like an hour. You know, he's out there knocking like, hey, you cool? And and so I go home and I'm just like, damn, I'm 10. And then that happened. And so I don't tell anyone that for years. You don't tell anyone because to you, it's your fault. What? Why didn't I stop the guy X, Y, and Z, right? And so... My family are these very critical people. You wear the wrong shirt and they're going to tear you apart, right? So they were not the people for me to go talk to. My mom is is very caring and helpful, but it would have broke her heart. So I didn't want to tell her. You know sure. what I mean? So it's interesting. My family's the spectrum. My mom is the most caring person with the highest emotional intelligence I've ever seen, but she's very insecure. And then my dad is the most fired up, secure man ever who has zero social and emotional intelligence. Your parents are still together? They're, no, they got a divorce when I was 18. So they move away from me and I keep the, the house that we're living in. So I start high school. I meet Rob Montgomery, who's our music chat guy. I don't know if he even realizes this. He literally teaches us uh, critical race theory when I'm in 10th grade. And the way he does it is this. He's like, hey, he's like, I want you to take a bunch of Jim Crow era personality tests that they used to give to people all the time. And so he shows us how the how the questions are racist and how you wouldn't even know the answers to these questions unless you're raised in some sort of 
certain class. And we read uh, Black Boy from Richard Wright with Rob Montgomery in 10th grade. And Black Boy is a fiction narrative, but it's still historical fiction in its way. So what he's doing, though, is he's showing us, here's the real world. He was showing us how they would use to see who qualified to vote. So it was a way that they were redlining the the voting districts, I guess, and keeping Mm -hmm. the black vote out, etc. This, for me, later goes on. There's a sociologist named um, Ezekiel J. Dixon Roman who goes on to study why the SAT is racist and why he uses a quantum physics. There's a there's a feminist quantum physicist named Karen Barad from UC Santa Cruz. And she has this wonderful book called Meeting the Universe Halfway. And it's about how when certain things are kept from existing, they're folded out of space-time. So for example, queerness has not been allowed to exist. It's been folded out of space-time. But anyway, so Rob Montgomery I know why he's doing this, right? He's teaching, he wears a blazer to to work and everyone's like, oh, this guy must be gay because he's wearing a suit. Because we live in a city where everyone else is like a football coach. Everyone else is a man's man. Everyone else's dad is, a lot of them smoke meth, a big meth area, right? Huh, okay. And Rob, maybe I'm wrong, saw this as an opportunity to start doing some work on the next generation to be like, hey, like maybe you don't need to think about the stuff that your family is probably telling you. And so I graduate high school. My parents get a divorce. I get, I'm delivering pizzas for, for Pizza Hut. A drunk driver crashes into me while I'm on the job and it breaks my neck, right? So I have to sue Pizza Hut and the driver. I win the case. I get like $120,000. So I just go and stay in youth hostels around America for a couple, like for a while. So I, that's why I've only been to New York one time because I was just cruising around America, seeing what was up. So I get hit by the drunk driver so I'm laid up at my house for like a while. And so I don't work for like two years. Right. So anyway, so how so, long, how long did that injury lay you up? You know, I was physically walking around the next day. I wasn't like paralyzed, but I wasn't Jeez. allowed. I wasn't cleared to work for like a year and a half or something like that. I was in community college. So I just kept taking all these wonderful philosophy courses and stuff like that. I end up living with like 30 people over the next decade, just renting rooms from friends of family or just random people working all types of jobs. I was, I worked at pier one imports. I, I was mixing paint, but in 2003, I got a job as an English MLA grader for a big high school in Palm desert, which is outside of Palm Springs. So I did that for two years. And then in 2006, I got a job at my high school as a, a special ed um, instructional assistant for resource, right? So I basically start college. September 11th happens. I finish my associate's degree in two years. And so I start college when I'm 17. I'm done by the time I'm 19, but I don't really like know what to do as far as a transfer goes. So I get my job and I and I work at the high school for seven years, just with no degree. And so I'm, I'm a resource specialist, right? So I'm working with non-traditional students. I'm working with students who supposedly have anger management problems, social issues, learning disabilities. I started to find that a lot of this has to do with like, a lot of them just don't speak English. A lot of them are just like kids who have been told that they're losers from the start or that they've been framed due to like a racialization of like their experience that that school's not for them. This is not for you. And I started to really think about that. And I'm working with special ed students. So I started thinking about non-traditional approaches to education, you know. So I leave in 2011. I finally go to UCR to finish my bachelor's degree so I can get a high school teaching credential and go back and and, and teach. But while I'm at UCR, I meet a couple of people. I meet John Gannam, who is their, he's their Chaucer professor. And he's like, he's the head of the International Chaucer Society. 
And so I start doing medieval studies with him, which leads me to queer theory because things like gender and sexuality aren't established till like the Victorian era, till like the 19th century. So Ganim, yeah, in some really non-traditional way leads me to queer theory. And then I meet Erica Edwards, who is a a black studies and African-American literature scholar at a Duke. And she's pretty new at UCR. And she goes on to become some superstar in her field, right? And so I take her post-Harlem um, Renaissance course with her, which puts me on this very serious trajectory of understanding racism in America as not trying to, like, it was an interesting journey for me as a white guy. What I really interrogate is the whiteness that even constructs blackness, right? Like, because blackness isn't a stable thing. It's a construct that comes out of a particular white imaginary. So Toni right. Morrison really helps me. She writes uh, Playing in the Dark, which is a book that really talks about colonization of America, the white colonizer. White isn't really established yet, and they need a way to differentiate themselves from the British, like European. And they say, well, we're not the indigenous and we're not the black slave. And so in a very interesting way, whiteness becomes lack. It becomes the space that's not there or something like sure. that. So then I take I take courses with her. I graduate. One of my mentors, though, instead of going back to the high school, he's like, hey, your interests sound like you should go get your PhD. You should go get your your master's degree. I do a master's degree at Cal Poly Pomona, which is a a local school outside of L.A. And that school, I really get into far more serious, like critical theory. And I take several courses on post-colonial theory, which really starts to get at the colonization of the Western world. But again, it's very male centric. So then I go on to really start getting into these notions of queerness and queer futurity and how the world we live in is can't be like this because a whole bunch of people are experiencing a lot of violence as a result of it, right? And so you said it yourself, I'm a straight white guy. That's how I identify right now, sure. Right. So it was hard for me to show up at these conferences and I'm like, hey, I wrote a paper on uh, the color purple about the queerness in that book. Let's talk about it. But who was really inviting and helpful to me was the black scholars and the, the and, and people who were really like, hey, look at, we see the mistakes you're making and we're going to help you not make those mistakes because you need to not speak about blackness like it's a thing. You need to not speak about, you know, queerness as if it's a locatable thing. So then that got me to my PhD work, which really allowed me to, to really, PhD work is weird because everyone's, everyone you're working with is super intense, super wonderful and beautiful. And that is a very intense, diverse group of people that has really even helped me unlearn a lot of like unintentional white uh, supremacist thoughts about a people, about myself, about the way things work, even language, uh, right. t- talking about uh, gender uh, pronouns. One of my best friends in the uh, program uh, became non-binary since I met them. And honestly... The brain shift, just because it's easier to say their dead name in my mind, I really had to like fight that. And it's like, it's, it's just effort. lazy brain stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I found that once I eased up on myself and started to try, well, a couple of things happened to me while I was in the program at, at UCR. Um, I got a DUI. And so I had to face a couple of things about the way I was dealing with my father and my historical past of like violence in my life. I wasn't handling it properly. So what the what the DUI did is it humbled me. It put me on a bicycle. I started mountain biking like a madman. You are a, a you bike more than anybody I know. Oh yeah, I, and you know what? I have friends that blow me out of the water, so I'm trying to hang with them. So my DUI put me in court ordered. I had to go to like an alcohol awareness class AA, but I 
I took one that was designed as a, as, as personal and group therapy sessions. And so I went there you show up and you're like, I don't need this. Look at all these fools. You're all, everyone here is an idiot. You're all mad. By the end of it, you're arm in arm with everyone. You're crying. You're having Aww. a potluck. You love each other. And the woman who ran it won't lie, a little, little rough around the edges with her approach, but the way that she allowed us to just, I don't know, speak freely in a group of really, here's who's getting DUIs, a bunch of toxic men in, in my class and a bunch of women who are like fired up and generally like, and now this might be geographically contingent to where I'm at. Cause I, I'm in the IE and the IE does have a lot of like working class conservative people. Mm-hmm. So in that class, I started to see a lot of the gender norms and the pressure of trying to hang on to these gender norms what seemed to be the root of a lot of these people's drinking in this class or racial tension or economic tension. And whenever I would bring stuff like that up, they're like, oh, you're crazy, Mr. College guy. However, there would always be a couple people, you know, usually a young black woman or or a young Mexican dude. They'd be like, no, I think I understand what you mean because I don't get to act how I want to because there seems to be this structure that's pushing on me. And I don't really know what it is. So I'm just going to go drink because I'm sad. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in this family where everyone had seemingly anger management problems. My older brother really was a big proponent of it. Well, he ended up getting in a domestic dispute with his wife and he got court ordered anger management and that helped that man. So where I'm going with this is if I hadn't taken that therapy after doing my master's degree and doing like my, my work. So that is where it's interesting thinking I was hot shit because I got into a PhD program and then being humbled by part of my DUI was my white privilege. And I had never been in trouble before. Like when I got pulled over by the cops that night, my first thought was, oh shit. If I was a person of color, they would probably whoop my ass right now. And I was like, my privilege is I'm going to get arrested. My privilege is still going to prevent me from being as injured as, as probably would have happened. I won't lie. I was hammered. I told the cops that too. On the way back, I got into the biopolitics of them working for the state. They were having a good time talking to me though, which again, (laughs) my, it speaks to the privilege though. Right. Because you know what I mean? If Um, you were a, if you were an uneducated person and, or a person of color, they wouldn't have allowed you to have that. And if I would have said, I could have said the same things and they would have stopped me. And I did go to the, County holding in San Bernardino is a little dicey because San Bernardino is a little dicey area. You know, uh, Detroit and San Bernardino have the, the the highest unsolved homicide rates in the country. Oh shit! Um, yeah. No, okay. San, so when I get in there, though, one thing about our work is a lot of my buddies do incarceration studies, looking at how basically slavery ends. So you invent the the carceral state to reduce a very complex history. But you know, Georgia historically didn't have a physical penitentiary they had the chain gang because slave labor is what they, they use to maintain the roads once um, slavery is abolished they're like well we'll figure out a way to keep this around and generally that's what they do and so that history is dark and that history is again who's coded as criminals so bring it back to rap music right rap music is taking back that it's like hey you're gonna say we're criminals well fuck y'all then we're gonna take this back i now understand that's what it is and i appreciate it don't get me wrong and and so i won't lie though i feel like a lot of white guys you're right who from my walk of life could hear this stuff and be like oh no because that puts a bunch of responsibility on me and i don't want to feel like i have to do anything and Um, that actually leads me to a question which is how do 
you, not speaking necessarily about you specifically, but how do educated white people yeah. with doctorates bring this back to the lay people? Yeah. To the people who don't have the privilege to be as educated or to study all of this stuff. Yeah. How do you bring this back to the quote unquote average person yeah. and make them understand it? Because there are more of them yes. than there are of you. Yes. Yeah. So to bring it really full circle, the, 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 the short answer is artwork. Artwork can speak these critical concerns to people. Artwork can translate these things. Now, I will say, though. Most academics aren't artists, right? So I write poetry, I record music, I do things like that. I'm not saying that it doesn't have the content of political activism because it, it does and it has, but not all, you know, well, that, that's a weird thing to say. Whatever songs are, sonic stuff is different. Like that's, that could be unintentional, un, unintentionally revolutionary. Actually, any, any artwork you make. Once you send it off, it's going to do stuff and that's, you know, out of your, out of yeah, your control. Yeah, and it's out of your hands. Another answer, though, is so my dissertation, for example, is generally going to be on Pokemon Go and Animal Crossing and Nintendo, which the layman love. I love that stuff. It's great. It's interesting. I do it for work and then I'm done working. I'm all, let's continue doing this for fun. I think a lot about the relationship between work and play. And, and I know the, the question is, is how does the average I'm going to pick on white males. Other people need to hear this too, but I'm going to say white males because that's what mm -hmm. I know, right? That's where I was going. White males, it's interesting because I know as a white male, a lot of white males will say things to you behind closed doors. Older white guys would always tell me there was like a race war and a gender war and how they're coming to get us and how all of our stuff shrinking. All that stuff that you hear like voice now, like a ridiculous soundbite that you hear from a conservative or whatever – yeah. Arm in arm, a, a drunk evening, a bunch of good old boys tell you stuff like that, right? My question is, how do you reach that guy, right? Because the white guys who want to like listen to hip hop and stuff, they just need to hear the right song. So for me, where certain hip hop is going, it's really, it's almost like it's queered in a way that's different than what Future is doing. It's different than what, because God bless like Young Thug and them. That scratches a young man itch, but that's not really breaking down any barriers. I saw a really good talk when Alex Wahelier, he's a scholar out of, I think he's in Texas. He does like black studies and he's from Germany though. So he has a really interesting relationship with his positionality as a black scholar. And he talks about how auto-tune takes away jobs from women and other vocalists of a high register. So when Young Thug and stuff are using the auto-tune, it's like they're using queer aesthetics, but they're going to cleave back to heteronormativity real quick because they don't want to be too right, queer. Right. And so things like that are interesting. So my dissertation is about the importance of open software and open access to the common man to do things like make podcasts, right? To publish music, to publish artwork. Because used to be like publication just seemed like you had to be like some old white guy and you published Shakespeare for the 500th time. Maybe you went to class and they're like, we're going to read great literature. Here's five white dudes. And I stress dudes. And if there's a black or any other person, it's a achievement and an anomaly that like they squirreled it. When I finished my doctorate, I'm applying to teach community college because that's where the common man is. That's where I went to school. That's where I started to unlearn a bunch of this basically that was programmed into me. So what I do with my class is I'm the white guy. First thing I do is I'm like, hey, everyone, I'm the white guy. We're going to talk about race. It's going to make you uncomfortable. Great. Tell me that. And even knowing that that kind of lets me off the hook, but then I try to keep I'm like, put me on the hook more though. Because you know, Rob, he taught me how to do improv comedy and improv comedy is about becoming really uncomfortable and just, mm -hmm. and, and really leaning into the discomfort. 
So I, I teach a course. It's, it's really an intro to writing course, but we only read black feminist poetry. So that becomes the theme of the course. Luckily, there's a whole bunch of black women in the course. So like we can have a good conversation about it because as you'd imagine, they know way more about it than I do, right? However, there's also a bunch of other people in that class. There's a bunch of just the white dude from the middle of California. And he's like, wow, I never thought about that before. And I'm like, you know what? Even though I want to look cool to the black students, I need you to say that to me because you're probably, and don't get me wrong, just because you're a black student doesn't mean you have the, like, you, you even know ever, all the nuance of like black conversations because, right. you know, that's another thing too. You don't want to be tokenized. You want to be like, well, you know, of course you have your finger on the pulse of every radical well, black movement, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, there's always an explanation of, hey, we're not a monolith. Yes. Yes. And you know what? Growing up where I did, there was plenty of black bro dudes who were just as riding dirt bikes as everyone else. And again, you start to realize you're like, oh, the race becomes a cultural performance in certain aspects. And don't get me wrong. That's not to say it's not a reality. We act white. You are acting black. Same with gender. You're Now, again, yeah. you know, if I was at an academic conference, I would have read all the theorists that are going to parse these terms out. Not saying that race and, and gender are the same thing. I'm saying that as a performative quality to them in that you can decide to act one way or the other and you have your audience it's, intentionality and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's about yeah. conditioned behavior. Yeah. We, we are, as as men, mm-hmm. I'm sure you as a white person and me as a black person are conditioned to act, talk, mm-hmm. react, present ourselves a certain way. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. I feel like a lot of adulthood is unlearning that stuff and becoming you. Yes, that is exactly what it is. And so how do we get the layman in on the conversation? Well, one of the things, so I'm a first gen college student, right? And when I applied for the PhD program, they're like, well, what's your educational goal? And I'm like, to open up more access to more people who historically were told college, like school's not for you because there's smart people doing this. You don't worry about that. You stay doing that over here, which generally is, is saying that thinking labor is, is over here and it's white and it's professional. And all that agricultural labor is generally coded as brown, black labor, and it's over here. So there's even a, a racist distinction between the mind and body and, and, mm. and, and gendered in, in the work I do. So this is where I get a lot of that from. And so I started thinking about if you don't think about the medium that a story's coming to you in a movie or a book and how those are different. It's almost like when a woman tells you the same information as a man told you or a black man tells you the same information as a white man, the container really changed the information that was supposed to not change. It was supposed to be metaphysically sound, which shows that Aristotle and all that is like racist, right? Well, one thing I did is part of my PhD is in indigenous studies with Mark Minch de Leon is my, is my mentor and chair. And I really started to look at what I would call indigenous intellectual traditions, right? And so in the okay. West, knowledge is key. We want to know everything. In certain indigenous traditions, you don't need to know everything because certain knowledge destroys you. So chill out, white man. I go and take these courses where you're like, hey, that's a Western colonial logic is to go around and name everything as if it needs your name, as if it needs your you, you to identify it. Use it to think through, but not to be like, oh, my existence is. However, though, when you start to think of as a white person, I never really thought of blackness has always been created by a white imaginary. And it's always been placed upon black bodies and black people. 
But I won't lie, that took a hell of a road to even come to something like that for me. Because as a young guy, you're listening to rap music and I'm like, well, I know this isn't every black person, but I don't know. It's it's rap. You know, you don't know if it's entertainment. You don't know. And you know, and, if it's reality. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Yeah. And so I think what it is, is there's a big reckoning in the entertainment industry. The music industry, though, is far more, you know, disjoined. And so back to like, how do we keep pushing more egalitarian mindset on the people. You know what? I don't want to praise it for everything it does because I could definitely get into some of its conservative militaristic undertones, but the Marvel movies have been attempting to normalize queerness in very safe ways that a giant corporation can, you know what I mean? Um, I'm a pop culture geek. I love video games and I love records and I love the stuff. Technology is giving us access to more things, but there's a bunch of erased people's labor that we don't see when you and I are sitting here at our computers, especially in America. I mean, my God. And so I guess to answer your question, how do we make the world a better place? A whole bunch of different ways, but a whole bunch of different people just doing little tiny like additions to it. So art artists like letting maybe a young black kid know that maybe you could be little Nas X, you could be queer and maybe rap. And so media representation is huge. I do think that there's a lot of like indie media that kids are actually have probably way more of a pulse than I do. And as we age gracefully and beautifully, I'm glad you dropped that in there. But I do think that video games and the internet get a bad rap and people will call that a, a sour culture. I think there's like a queer possibility in, in these mediums that people have latched onto that have made it so a lot of my older conservative family members who I never would have thought would be chilling with us watching RuPaul and stuff now are. So baby steps, I guess. But And then my thing as an educator, I'm like, send me the children. We'll talk about it. And then when I get too old, hopefully the new kids can take over and we'll get there too. So there's a naive hope that the world can be a better place. So it's that utopia. That's what studying queer theory taught me is that I didn't need to be queer to understand that I could be different than I am, but the world may not be letting us be who we want to be. And then I suddenly realized, man, as a white male, I probably experienced the least of those confines on me. So, you know, Audre Lorde, you know, really talks about intersectionality as being, you can't just focus on your particular problem. And the world is not a fixed math problem. You don't just plug it in and it goes on forever. It's shifts. It's always different. The race conversation is being changed now because of the culture, because of the mediums, because of the internet, because of TV. Absolutely. And good things will emerge, problems we never thought will emerge too, but we'll we'll confront them. And even then my work's not done because I, I haven't figured out the racism within myself and the world and the way that that sure. stuff structures who I am. To Brown knows right now, my wife is this wonderful thoughtful Latina feminist who teaches like like Latinx literatures and has really helpful approaches to like like queer states of being and feminism that helped me so I I live with my my wife and my stepdaughter and they have like mixed backgrounds so my, my wife is half white and, and half Mexican and my daughter is half Italian and half Mexican and so because of the quarantine I only hang out with them like 99% of the time, I only hang out with women all the time, right? And it, I realized once I was away from straight men, I, I realized how 
competitive and jarring just hanging out with straight men was all the time. Don't get me wrong. I have some some great straight men friends. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know. But my best friends who I feel the most comfortable around are my queer buddies because I can let loose and just chill and be a little bit more me because my true performance is not as masculine as the true heteronormative masculine dude. So I think what it is, though, is I think because the culture is getting a little more queer, the pressure is being lifted. It's just so slow to lift. But let me ask you, I'm not, I don't feel it. I don't feel it as much as you do, if at all. Is it lifting or is it lifting because it's commercially viable to do so? I, for whatever reason, my circle is probably straighter than the average queer person's is yeah. and probably whiter than the average black person's is. Yeah. Is it because of, and do you think your art, like your music interests or like specifically, or is it just, or is it like a lot of factors, you know? I think it's a lot of factors. Yeah. I think it, it, it does come down to pop culture mm-hmm. in some ways. I think it comes down to what I do for a living. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there are various things that, that factor in there. What I am seeing is Definitely progress. Yeah. There is a a queering of culture that I did not think was possible 25 years ago. I even feel new to the game because you have that moment where you're like, oh, wow, there was a name for all this. There was a bigger push for all this. Because then you start to recontextualize, you know, watching uh, Tu Wong Fu as a kid or, you know, really any time queerness was allowed into the culture and the way it was handled, the way that it, I think about it a lot too. It depends on what's happening culturally. For me, growing up in the post 9-11 era was the most helpful thing in me seeing America's flaw. The biggest cheerleader for it, my cousin, he got killed defending it i'm not saying that he like died you know i understand like the politics of that too but you know what i mean though the toxic male culture let us all down and so again that's why the importance of the common people getting the access to create media content and stuff we've looked to corporations for too long to produce our culture for us right you know to create Mm -hmm. to create and ingest i think you know i still come from an era before cable. Yes, exactly. Before there were options. Yeah. So what you got is what was fed for you. What, yes. what was fed to you yes. via whatever media, whether it was radio or television or, yeah. or what have you. Yeah. I think the fact that in the last 20 to 25 years, yeah. the internet and social media has become so prevalent, mm-hmm. it has democratized in good ways yes. and, and, and in bad ways, the options that you have where yes. it gives space to a lot more voices than were available Ultimately, it's a good thing because, you know, I come from an era when the black voice was Bill Cosby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where assimilationist and queerness, um, that's where, again, that's where I saw the, the, the headbutt. I'm like, well, you can't exist as a queer person in, I was raised a Christian a Catholic conservative. So what are you doing? You can't do anything, right. basically. What do you think is the next step in Grant's personal evolution? What part of you do you want to evolve the most? That's a really good question. Well, part of it, I think about it a lot because I'm about to finish my PhD. And although I've been working as a teacher for years now, and pretty much once you finish your bachelor's degree, like school after that is not college. It's, you know, however, I've been a student still to where I haven't had to take on what it is to teach like a full load, right? Like, like five classes where you have like, hundred students instead of, instead of 20. Right. Mm-hmm. And so 
and, and part of that needs to come from the way that I like prioritize my time, right? I absorb a lot of pop culture media and, and, I, and you know, I, I like a lot of time for myself. And especially with the pandemic, it, it made it really easy just to stay home, you know, because when I was younger, I was super social. And now that I've I stayed home, I've kind of like, I'm like, cool. Quitting drinking helps me really think about discipline, about stuff like that in my life. And that was a big goal. When I was younger, I was like, if I don't really cut back by the time I'm 35, I'm going to have severe health problems, right? So that was something I had to do. And was that a consequence of the DUI or? Yeah. Was- well, because I got the DUI and I had been wanting to quit anyway. And so when I got the DUI, I was like, cool, because now if I tell people I'm done, it'll make sense to them. Because sure. I had tried to quit in the past and they're like, why? I'm like, I just don't feel like it. They're like, oh, come on. And so when I told people I got the DUI, they're like, oh yeah, for sure, bro. So it's funny. It made me think of a couple of things because if you really want to know what the, like what I should actually focus on is even though me and my immediate family, like me and my wife, we have a really positive, healthy life, right? Mm-hmm. And my mom, who's remarried with, with, um, with my stepdad, we, we're really positive and healthy. But it's like my dad and a couple of brothers and sisters, like we still haven't sorted stuff out. You know what I mean? So my thing is this, as thoughtful as I, I can be about other people, and, and I, I have not been able to extend that patience to like my father and to people hmm. in my family. I went over to my dad's house like a month ago and he tried to tell me some nonsense. And I, I like told him, you know, in so many words to shut up or I was going to stop him. So I just left the house. You you see, so as high minded as I want to be, I will revert to like, oh, well, you're the big bully. So I'm conflicted. His blatant racism and sexism put me on this trajectory to do the work I do, which is great. The better world would be the world that you don't have to do that work. So it's like sorting out. I handled my drinking, which allowed me to handle my own emotions, right? But my my next step is kind of like striking. That's why I bring up work too, because once I once I I'm basically applying to local community colleges, and if I get my full time positions, not only am I going to teach a full time you know teaching load, but I want to develop a, a brand new media lab for what we're talking about. I want to open up access to the, the community college students don't get all the fun gear that I know they have at UC and I'm going to write a bunch of grants and I'm going to open like a big 3d printing multimedia lab. Kids can come in, do a podcast. You know what I mean? I need to balance. So my family's also changing because my stepdaughter just graduated high school and she's 18 and she's about to start college. So, you know, another reason I feel older is because even though I feel young, it's like I have a kid who's starting college. I raised her, her the past 10 years of her life. So it's almost like I'm entering into a, a couple of things. One thing I have going for me in the work I do is I've always been working class, right? And so I've always been able to teach my students and be like, hey, I feel you. I'm broke too. I'm about to get paid for the work I do. I'm about to take on a different kind of work where I'm not as going to be engaged with my critical research. I and mean, I could easily just start teaching and kind of ossify over there and lose sight of some of the more social and political aims of the work that we do um, at the university. And so it's kind of like... Like, I know that's what I've been gearing up to, but I think about it like this. The PhD has been so much work. And I'm like, am I putting myself in position to do more work once I'm done? I'm like, (laughs) how how am I going to do that? So, and I don't know if that's like a good answer to what you're asking, but I think what it is, is I've been deceptively like able to be not as professional, you know, because people are like, oh, you work, you know, I I teach at UCR, then I teach at uh, different community colleges as well. And I have since 2017. And then I've worked at a high school since 20, 2006, I guess, 2003 uh, officially. 
So everyone's on paper. I have like this good job, but really yeah. I don't, sometimes I'll work 60 hours a week, like when it's grading and stuff like that. Right. But there are times where I'm still like a graduate student where I get to kind of just go and be, you know, just kind of go whatever. And I, I like to work, but I don't like to do my work for work all the time is, is kind mm. of what it is. So I guess it's like, I need to mature on being productive I really need to really consider who I am, my positionality. Does another white man need to work at your institution who's qualified for the job? I still want to do my work though. So I need to be very ethical about taking work from scholars of color and queer scholars and just a big different range of like, so I need to be very realistic about if we're talking about like decolonizing like spaces and we're talking about like, being more equitable in hiring processes and stuff like that. I need to really think about like, well, how, not just me, but how do I'm about to be a white guy in a position of power handing out jobs, I think, right? Like that's probably right. what I'm going to be doing. And, right. the, and the question is, is like, there's a really big ethical thing that gets pushed on by the fact that you want to pay your bills too, which gets, again, this capital capitalism starts to, starts to put pressure on you. So my short answer is, is I need to negotiate my ethical life from my economic life when those two things are so wrapped up in the work I do. Mm. And that's a more cogent way of saying what I need to work on. How do I make money, but do the right thing and not forget why I, I, I can't use black pain as a way to get a degree and then go make money off that without actually right. helping like. The, those right. very people and right. you know black is just one we study all types of people over right. at, over at the school so you see what right. i mean so it's like yeah and i'm like low income first gen you know white people are also they just have this uh fantasy that they're not screwed no they're they're they need help too they're screwed. so oh yep. no they're potentially more screwed because they don't <laughs> think their needs to work, work doesn't need to be done so here's another thing i'm negotiating i pictured myself leaving California, being more worldly, having a more expansive experience. Well, my parents are getting older. There's health problems. My wife has her career here. I'm going to also make some family choices and probably stay local and work. I work in the Inland Empire, which is like that David Lynch movie. And it's one of the most just, ooh, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting place in America. There's a really interesting cross-section of people here. It has more warehouses than any place in maybe the country or something like that. So mm. like the worker is very specific. And so, so again, I didn't think I was going to be here. So if you want to ask me another thing too, I was like, wow, like I'm, you know, it was a place we drove through on the way to LA. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I guess coming to terms with life realistically ha forcing you to act, I guess is also something I have at, to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> at 38, mm -hmm. at 38, with siblings and I'm going to devil's advocate you here mm -hmm. at, at 38 with you're still, so you're still pretty young. Mm -hmm. You've got siblings. So the onus of parental care isn't entirely upon you. Yeah, it's, it's not, but geographically it is. And okay. Potentially socially because of who I am and who they are. Yeah. Potentially, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting line doing what you feel you need to do for yourself versus the responsibility that you feel that you have towards the people in your life. Yeah. I had a, a very similar conversation, man. And 
15 years ago with a professor and I was telling him something similar and he's like, yeah, but you're not Jesus. You can't help everyone. So, so why are you putting so much pressure on yourself? Right. And the real answer is, is when I was in fifth grade, my grandmother died on my mom's side. And so my grandpa ended up getting put into a care home. He was an alcoholic, so he had hydrocephalus. So his, his legs shrunk up into his body. He, he couldn't walk that kind of thing. Oof. He lived in an apartment for a couple of years and he lived in a care home for seven and the only family member who showed up was my mom and she took care of that fool. And I went with her and took care of that guy. Right. And suddenly I realized I was like, oh, damn, no one's going to do this for her or for anyone, because that is like this crazy burden. And right. so one thing about it is in a very realistic sense, I really like having my mom in my present life. She actually is, they, they she actually sold their house at Joshua Tree that they lived there for she lived there for 40 years and she moved closer to be closer to be my wife. And my, my stepdad has stage four inoperable prostate cancer. So he's at a particular moment where, so there's a couple of like, just, oh, just real world kind of stuff. The bigger concern is my mom is probably going to more directly need someone to like help her out or even my stepdad. And then I have right. a sister in Arizona and a brother in West Virginia, so they can't be there for them. And then my little brother is cool, but he's just not in a financial state to take care of any, anyone. I hear what you're saying, though. That shouldn't limit me. The way that my job works is like, you know, you get your PhD, but then a school over in across the country, you know, might offer you a position and you might jump around like, you know, or when I teach, there's only two slots available and I got to go take the job there. So I, I'm, I'm aware of like one thing about it, though, is. With built into my work is um, we travel and do conferences all, all the time. So I get to travel a lot and I get to, you know, I'm constantly going to, I don't know, at least American cities, not, not too much international yet. Talk to me when I get, when I'm getting paid for it, then I'll, then I'll fly to, you know, Europe or whatever. So part of it is, part of it's that part of it is Southern, Southern California schools are hot. If you can get a tenure track position in any of these schools, it's, it's very desirable G getting into a PhD program. And so I just know that if I can stick around here also, cause I like to rock climb and mountain bike and surf and stuff. Having said all that, I'm not saying that I wouldn't move elsewhere. It's just that I'm very family oriented with particular family members. However, I do think that if I can be lucky enough to get a tenure track at one of these local community colleges. I could work here for a decade and then relocate after because a lot of academic jobs look like that as well. I don't know what my journey of learning to negotiate my own time with my family obligation. I imagine I will balance that because realistically, my wife and I don't have a lot of forefronted concerns, so I can take on other people's projects. However, I know how life is. You know, you know what I mean? Also, me and my wife, we would like to have another kid. So that's another thing too. To finalize that question is my biggest hurdle for me has always been the, the emotional relationship between me and my family because I don't think that they distributed good coping mechanisms of growing up. You know what I mean? So so it's almost like I'm sitting with my mom and other family members reflecting on our life being like, wow, that was a jarring approach. Huh. Yeah, yeah. And so part of it though too, I just really enjoy hanging out with certain members of my family. So I won't lie, to sound realistic and grim, I want to spend the time I can with my mom and my stepfather now 
knowing that there's going to be probably a bigger chunk of my life where I'm not with them. And so I can right. you know, focus on that also. That makes um, sense. I won't lie though. You would, you would ask me that when I was 19, I would have told you I'd be living in Europe right now, jumping house to house, living the life. You know what I mean? So, you know, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody at 19, you can't, you can't, no one at 19 is doing or no one at 38 is doing what they thought they wanted to do at 19. Yeah. Yeah. I always wanted to teach. I just didn't know what it looked like. And I didn't know, I didn't know what I was going to have to do to become the knowledgeable person who could tell others what to do and how to do things. I think, which was, which was, I think that's why a lot of first teachers are, um, a lot of first year teachers are are terrified because they're like, well, I don't, I don't know what to do. So when I was younger, I was like, I'm going to take my time just experiencing things because then when I'm a teacher, I'll be like, oh, I've, I've done this in the past. So we can talk about it or something like that. The other question about healthier stuff on my part is I definitely want to become more involved with political outreach kind of stuff. I have some friends who are really good with doing local work to help bolster communities economically, Mm -hmm. anti-violence, like pro humanitarian Mm -hmm. organizations. And again, there's a danger where getting into my line of work is we do that kind of humanitarian work at the school, but we're paid a bunch of money for it too. And so that's also talking about learning how to negotiate these things. There's almost like a built-in nobility to the work that you do at the academy where you can, you can kind of hide behind that. And then it's like, well, how, you know, how much activism are you really doing? Like who who are you really helping and that kind of stuff. And again, though, talking about getting older, as you age, your desire for revolution kind of, I don't know, maybe like, maybe the the style of revolution shifts a bit or something like that. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I I think that differs from, from person to person. Yeah. Yeah. Not to say that you become better with the status quo. I, I just more mean, the one where you pull the rug out from underneath society and you camp in a Mad Max tent for a while yes. seems less yeah. desirable potentially. Yes. I would love to see the current structure not be the current structure. That would be right. That would be delightful. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not in a way that's going to make my bones hurt in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. That's always <laughs> the question. Could Can there be a functional nonviolent revolution? That's my question with my family. Can I approach my father without telling him I'm going to sock him? You know what I mean? Right. Uh, I think that's a, it's a micro and macro problem. Y- yeah. Yes, indeed. And maybe that, you know how everyone talks about this, you know, the, the division in the world right now and how there's no compromise. You know, I'm guilty of that. I, you know, my old man is definitely, he's opposed to what I think. And I'm under the impression though, he doesn't want to learn. So I'm like, well, if you don't want to learn, what are you going to do? You know, kick rocks. Sometimes so, there you know, really, sometimes there really is no compromise. You can't, you can't reason with someone who doesn't want to be reasoned with. Yes. And so here is maybe, maybe here's the, the bigger thing I need to come to terms with. Who who do I need to cut? Who do I really need to cut to, to keep a positive life? How about this? I've been married for five years and I've raised my daughter for 10. And my dad only met my family because it was at my grandma's funeral. I never introduced them to him. Oh, wow. To keep him away from them. Yeah. When I talk about the importance of like my mom and stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot I, happening. In the, in the theme of the podcast... What do I do with the source of my personal toxic masculinity, the racism, the sexism, the built-in cultural performance? Part of it is you're like, well, I come from that, my God. Like, what is, you know, Mm -hmm. what does that say about, I'm not really one of these like, oh, I come from the thing, so I am the thing. So I'm not super concerned about that. But I do, I think about, you know, DNA and, you know, just, you know, biological things of that nature. Me quitting drinking had a big lot to do with like, him being an alcoholic and that kind of thing. Actually, everybody in my family uh, on both sides are alcoholics, like historically. And so, yeah, so I guess my next goal, 
is to really come to terms with this family stuff in a in a productive way. It's like the part of me wants to help them or or help help family members that that want help, but then understanding when it's like wasted energy or something. I think that's hard right. for me to read. I guess I think when it's family, people that you're supposed to be so close to and cherish, yeah, it's really hard to make a distinction. Yeah, and and, and and the emotions run deep, right? Because you love yeah. them, so you just get fired yeah. up and you hate them in the same sentence. Yep. And yeah, I always found that the people I got along with the best were not my family members because they didn't stress me out. Because you know right. they're not they're not those people. So right. And it, but what's interesting, and and I think about this a lot too. A lot of family in America is definitely the heteronormative family structure. And so one thing that I've I've thought a lot about mainly because my professor Boris Dunley wrote a wrote a study on this or was like like queer post family iterations of family like um who's your family in my my household none of us have the same last name and so like their family is like a far more broad wider reaching dynamic which right. I was definitely open to ideas like that but never thought about them and then once you get introduced to stuff like that you're like where do I lay in this matrix and now that I know other available futures like what what do i do with that i come from that same background very heteronormative mm-hmm. uh patriarchal family yeah. structure and i always had in my head the idea of chosen family as opposed to uh blood relatives yes yes and since you know polyamory wasn't the 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 truth bomb yeah of it all yeah but it definitely put into workable realistic structure what the idea of a chosen family could look like yeah and i think that's what it is is that not feeling ashamed of doing things that you desire and finding others that not only reciprocate the desire but then help build you up because they like they feed it back somehow. They're letting you just be yourself. And that is scarce almost. That's a big conflict, I think. That's yeah. a journey. I also think in a larger, you know, doing like the work I do at work, there's a moment at the end of the day where personally by yourself, you just have to be like, I'm the bad guy in the narrative. And so what do you do with that? <laughs> so what really is funny is that one thing I really spent a lot of time studying was um, it, your PhD has to have three different focuses and my major is American film, but it's specifically those universal monster movies, right? And I started thinking about like, what what even is monstrosity? Like we love Dracula and Frankenstein and monster starts to just suddenly become a social like depository for anything that's other or different or scary. And I right. suddenly realized like, we don't really know what humans are. Like that's, you know, been a constructed. And so I was raised in this very Christian conservative family and I refused just to to, to cast them off. But the thing is, the way that me and my wife live our life, it's like, you're going to change who you are too. And my mom's on board for it, but not everyone is, you know what I mean? And so it's like shifting notions of family because you know what I mean? Like I have a lot of friends who are family, you you know, due to our relationships far more so than any of my actual brothers or sisters or anything like that. And I'm sure they can say the same thing, but we all can say the same thing, right? Because then it starts to get out whatever the narrative of family, you're supposed to feel indebted to them because you're supposed to have some bond to them. There's not a universal yes or no answer to that. Yeah, yeah. And I think some people, it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning about binary thinking. There's this assumption that you're indebted to these people and you're supposed to love these people. Yeah. 
when you really have to take it on a person by person, case by case, by case basis. Yes, yes. And if the relationship is toxic and what they are giving back to you is not love, then what is, or it's the kind of love that is hurtful and toxic to you. Yeah. That's well, what's what the tough. hell are you doing to yourself? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so that's, that's something that I think my family as a whole needs to work on. But I don't know if we will come together collectively and work on that. And I don't know it's, if we can, you know? Yeah, I think I think ultimately it go it it's about each individual coming to terms with whatever. And if you're further ahead than the other people uh that you're related to, then so be it. You can only you can only pull people so far along before you have to save yourself. Yeah, yeah. You know what? And so and and back to the point you were making about, you know not taking on so much responsibility over everything. I hear what I hear what you're saying in there too. The onus is not on me specifically to save everyone in the in the world. You right. know what I mean? You know, talk about post family, I became a stepfather and talk about humbling your your masculinity in a world that privileges biological reproduction. I really had to come to terms with the realities of being a father when Basically, a whole bunch of other dudes who would have their baby would start to explain to me what fatherhood was like. And I'm like, well, I, I mean, I just raised a child from eight years old till graduating high school, but I guess I don't know. Which, which I get because, you know, it's, uh, but how, however, though. It's still, yeah. you raised a child. Yeah. And so this is like a very real post-family thing that created a lot of emotional hurdles for myself and my stepdaughter because sure. that was tough for her to adjust to. I wasn't ready to be a, a dad. I was still young and having fun. You know what I mean? My favorite thing about the future, this is what Gilbert Simondon says, I think, is that the future, unlike anything else, has a capacity to deviate from the presence, unlike anything else, yes, to indeed. where it will yes, be different. Indeed. And so, you yes, know, indeed. so it's like, yeah, yeah. But I will say the one thing that I did is when I was younger, I would just kind of let my family go and I would be like, they're fine. They can handle handle themselves. And now that I'm older, I think one of the reasons that I, I did make a decision like, okay, I'm going to keep my mom and stepdad close because they're on in the years and they're going to need the help. Let me ask you, Mike. So we, I don't know, the pandemic might look different to you in, in Brooklyn, right? How back to the regular world are y'all over there? It depends on who you ask. I mean, yeah. me personally, I'm, you know, I, I up until... A couple of weeks ago, I was going into the office a couple of days a week. Yeah, so yeah. I was doing that. I'm still not really going to shows. Yeah. I, I, you know, still have a little bit of a crowd aversion. Yeah. You made me think of this point where it's like, it's so weird to think of self-progress when the world is stagnated. Yeah. And how yeah. another reason that I got so, oh, let's keep the, my mom and stepdad close is we didn't see them for the previous holidays. And then again, it just made me re reflect on... There is a moment where people just kind of lose sight of the fact that you're going to die soon. So you might as well just jump on it and handle it. Having that stroke as a kid did for me. It showed me that you are on a thread of your life is just right here and it could just be gone any moment. It ain't. And yeah, you're not guaranteed anything. Think about mundane priorities as opposed to romantic like wishes or something like that, yeah. which is interesting. I, you know, when you're on the go all the time, you don't have the bandwidth yeah. To think about more, you know, I guess mundane is the right word. You don't have the bandwidth to think of more mundane things. Yeah. But when you're stuck, mm -hmm. when you're sitting in the house and you can't 
go anywhere because it's unsafe. That's yeah. when your brain kind of locks into the, well, maybe I need to break things down in a little bit more uh, incremental fashion and figure out oh, yeah. what this piece of my life needs to, you know, the smaller pieces of the puzzle. Oh, yeah. You know, the one thing I didn't bring up in during the conversation was as a kid living in a predominantly white supremacy society, I was a stoner. All the black kids hung out with us and all the white kids were, were <laughs> alcoholics. There wasn't many black kids in, in my town, but because me and my homie grew weed, we hung out with predominantly the, it was like, cause we had the football player dude. So there was a couple of football player guys and they smoked weed. So they always would bring their cousins and everyone over. And so right. even though we lived in a very white area, it was always like, Oh, well, you know, like, well, we're cool with these guys because they're like our stoner buddies. And yeah. you know, these are these big tough guys, you know, they're like these big football player guys, you know, they're, they're macho dudes. They're not trying to hear anything from anyone, but then there's a, you know what I mean? So it's, it's interesting that, Again, late 90s, interesting time for people. It was an interesting time. It was a very interesting time. You know what I found is that weed feminized all of us and no one realized it was happening. No one one saw it happening. That's that's what it was. It was pumping everyone full of estrogen. It was chilling people out. Maybe, maybe. It really allowed me to calm down and think about my aggressive, like, emotions as being a problem and and needing to confront that kind of thing. And for me, smoking weed allowed me to really slow down and and like, like see who I was and kind of know that I didn't want to be my toxic father and brother. And so it helped me sort that stuff out. I don't know if that's the most healthy way because, you know, the brain science is still out, but it helped me. It definitely did. It's, you know, there are significantly less healthy ways. Maybe your dad needs to smoke some weed. You know what? I honestly... There's a lot of people I know that it's like, smoke some weed, calm down. Don't take yourself so seriously all the seriously, time. And, yeah. You know, that really humility and, and, and being humble goes a long way. And, and it's interesting. We live in this Judeo-Christian, but no one really clings on to those humbleness, forgiving people. It's all, every, mm-hmm. Everyone likes to look at the military, the militant stuff, smite your foes. You know, if you're ideologically opposed to us you are burning in hell and hell and it's a yes. it's a war but kind the of bible thing. was ultimately all about forgiveness and empathy yeah and openness yes and i always think about whatever whatever if there's the man jesus whatever he's preaching is not what the christian conservative is actually going damn right. for it is damn a, right he was for a far more loose uh, society i think and and you know you are absolutely correct and so yeah unfortunately though that's all been erased due to all types of factors, publication being just one of them. <laughs> yep. Major appreciation to Grant for taking time out of his schedule to chat. We had an absolutely wide-ranging conversation and somehow managed to tie everything together, which I love. If you're interested in knowing more about Grant, make sure you follow him on Instagram at Grant O. Palmer. Thanks for listening to the Detoxicity Podcast. My name is Mike Joseph. Once again, if you want to find me online, hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. I'm on Twitter intermittently at TizMikeJoseph. You can go to Facebook.com slash Detoxicity. You can email me, DetoxPod at gmail.com. Love to hear constructive criticism. Love to hear feedback. Would love if you are a potential guest or you know somebody who you think would be a potential guest, please, by all means, reach out to me. And remember, if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe, rate, 
comment, do all of the things necessary to push this podcast up in the podcast rankings and get this into as many ears as possible. Tell a friend, do whatever it is you need to do. And uh, thank you once again for listening. I personally want to thank the following people for their support. Uh, Calvin Williams and Jacob Block, Jeff Giles and Andrew Grossman. Thank you very much. I hope all of you stay well, stay safe and healthy. Until next time.